0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated.
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of the word. We thank you for the opportunity to sing your word back unto you, to exalt the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We now ask that you would use the written word to change our hearts, to have, that the, by the person of your Holy Spirit, we might comprehend fully to the extent that we are sanctified by it, we might be changed, transformed, made more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this morning's uh, message is entitled, Rally to Yahweh, our banner of spiritual deliverance. Well, there's a couple words in there that we don't really Interact with a lot in our culture. One is banner. Do we even know, even know, and understand from a military perspective what a banner is? And deliverance. Sometimes deliverance is seen as a synonym for salvation. And there are components that overlap, but they're not exactly the same. So as we first take a look at and try to get our heads around, what is this thing, a banner, and how does that play into? my understanding from a military perspective, couldn't help but wonder as Americans, do we have any history, particular history that would be helpful to to bring this out? And lo and behold, we have some particular history that we all should recognize. And that is, sometimes we don't remember the name of our national anthem is actually the Star Spangled Banner. And so if you'll allow me to read a little excerpt of history on this and how it came about, and then I'm, I'm gonna read for you the first stanza, the first of four sections of this particular poem. We actually only in the Star Spangled, Sp- uh, Star Spangled Banner recite the first stanza. I never realized there were three other stanzas, and interesting enough, God is mentioned in it more so than even in the first one. So it's, it's fascinating. I'm not gonna go into that. If you wanna look it up online, you can. Let me read to you this little historical note. The Star-Spangled Banner is the national anthem of the United States. The lyrics come from the defense of Fort McHenry. It's the title of a poem written on September 14, 1814. Some might think that our national anthem is derived or came out of the War of Independence. It didn't. It came out of the, the war... Uh, that, well, it'll, it's the 1812 War. Let's continue on. was written on September 14, 1814 by 35-year-old lawyer and amateur poet Francis Scott Key after witnessing the bombardment of Fort McHenry by British ships of the Royal Navy in the outer Baltimore Harbor in the Potask if I've said that right, some of you may live there, that, that still may be named, that particular river, during the Battle of Baltimore in the War of 1812. Key was inspired by the large U.S. flag with the 15 stars and 15 stripes known as the Star-Spangled Banner, flying triumphantly above the ford. Let's listen to what he pens as it relates to the banner, the star-spangled banner that waved above. We know it, and I actually had to write it out, not by line, because I found myself singing it. You don't want to hear me sing it. So I've written it out in, a, in more of a narrative form, so hopefully I don't start humming it as we go. But it is a need. Every time I hear this particular song, there is a sense of keenness of who we are as a people. And if we can grasp that understanding, that's what's supposed to happen underneath the identity of a banner. So let's take a look at this. Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars do the perilous flight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. Interesting, that's actually a question mark. I've never actually saying that as a question mark were they gallantly streaming if you're the victor they will be if not they're not seen as gallantly streaming let's continue and the rockets red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag in other words our banner was still there oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave hear the question form or, the land of the free and the home of the brave interesting how powerful that can be in some sense it's a, that, that the fact that it ends in a question: does it still does that banner still wave over the land of the free and of the brave, or has something changed? Banners can change, but we 'll see that today 's banner, or at least the understanding of it doesn 't change from the perspective of, of what it represents. Today we'll see Israel use the banner. Particularly we'll see that Yahweh himself is Israel's banner. It's not the poll that's going to be raised. We're going to see that. We saw it. You probably heard it, read it, um, when uh, uh, Gerald was reading it today. It's actually not the poll. He's speaking of Yahweh as being our banner, and we'll see that. And we'll also see that we, that Yahweh becomes the rallying point. That's what a banner was. You put the pole up on a high place. It was typically uh, uh, brought, someone would walk to a place of uh, elevated advantage. We saw, you see in today's passage a hill. That person would walk up the hill. They would raise the banner so all of the people down below could see it, and they would rally. They would draw near to the, ball- to the banner. The banner was the rallying point to gather the people. And today we'll see that God's going to use that as a means of gathering the people under his protection. It's a beautiful picture. And for the takeaway, if you happen to notice on your bulletin, and you're following along in the uh, bulletin outline or the sermon outline, you'll see the takeaway today is, as the people of God, we are called to rally to Jesus our banner for protection and deliverance from the evil one. In fact, we'll see those two work together as protection by deliverance that we're going to see today. So under the, our first bullet point that we're going to study today, Yahweh is present and fights on behalf of his people. Let me just start, and then I, I'm going to get barely into this, and then we're going, to, we're going to hold off and make sure that you guys understand where we are go over kind of a little overview to make sure, because if you don't understand the, the past, you'll, well, you will miss things in this uh, passage. And remember, we're learning that the Bible interprets the Bible. So we can see concepts happening without actually seeing the words there is what I'm getting at. Sometimes people say, well, it doesn't say that word, or that's not in the context. And you have to sit there and go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You're looking at this from parachuting in and dropping right here. You're not understanding that Hebrew tells a story like this. And it comes around, and it's, it's elliptical, and it grabs more information, and it tells it a little bit differently, and it grabs more information. And it's, it's a progressive revealing of what God is doing in history. So if we understand that as a hermeneutic, that's a, a means of interpreting our Bible, then we can go, oh, we've seen elements of this before. Is God bringing those elements in one of his elliptical loops to, to bring it into context, context that we have a greater understanding? And to that we say, yes, that's hermeneutically, that's grammatically, biblically correct on what we should be doing. So I, I'm hoping that you guys see that today. In Exodus 17:8 through 11, it starts with this. It says, Amalek. And we don't know exactly who Amalek is. Some say, oh, Amalek is... is uh, He's one of the descendants of Esau. And we'll see that there is somebody named Amalek. But we also see before Esau is even unseen in Genesis 14, there's a reference to the Amalekites. There's an Amalek back there. So which one is it? We don't know for sure. So I don't want want to sound as if I know. We just know that this particular one is named Amalek. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Okay, let's step back right there and, and... get our past in place first we have we've got the fall of humanity humanity falls uh, they are there's no longer a garden setting they're put out of the garden and we see what uh, humanity does and until we get to chapter six it just gets uh, rapidly worse and worse and worse until that it's filled with violence and so God brings the flood and he, and he wipes out and removes all the evil and then very quickly we have, once again, evil uh, overwhelms again, and we have the Tower of Babel. That's mankind trying to go up and storm the gates of heaven, saying, well, we want both. We want everything. We want heaven, and we want to be gods over ourselves, which is kind of what Adam and Eve agreed to when, they, when they, Satan said, you can be like God. and they said, And they took a bite and said, yep, that's what we want. So then we, we have God going to Abraham. God saying, look, I'm going to take one person out of all of this, this mess of humanity, and I'm going to establish a covenant with that person. I'm going to raise up a family that I'm going to turn into a nation, and I'm going to use that nation to bring a blessing upon all the earth. So that's what we understand. And then, so what happened after you've got... Abraham, followed by the patriarch Isaac, followed by the patriarch Jacob. And all of a sudden, Jacob has his, his 12 sons, and the 12 sons grow into a family of 70, and there's a famine, a God-ordained famine. And this famine draws Jacob's family over to Egypt, where they're protected and cared for by Joseph, one of the brothers. And we know about what happened to Joseph by his other brothers. But they're there 400 years, and in the, the, the e- Egypt for 400 years, they're enslaved. And then all of a sudden, Exodus opens up. This, this book of Exodus uh, explains that God who promised that this was going to happen, he foretold it. So it's not outside of his control. It's not something he didn't ordain. God says, I'm going to, to have you come out of that situation. I'm going to defeat those that are your oppressors and bring you out. So this is what we saw in the beginning of the Exodus. Up until this point, what God was doing was he was defeating the false gods, those fallen angelic beings that wanted to be worshipped, ultimately under the authority of Satan, the head and the hierarchy. And those false gods were, were oppressing the Israelites. And one by one, he picks them off through the ten plagues. And he, he, he deals with each of them, shows they're nothing. He has power over them. And then we have the exodus. They're, they're, they go out under God's leading and they go through the Red Sea and they make it successfully and God destroys Pharaoh and his armies. Pharaoh was the human leader that was the, the puppet that Satan used to oppress the Israelites. And so the Egyptians were the oppressors with Pharaoh being the ultimate leader over the oppressors. So we have this scenario now where this nation Israel it's it's a baby nation it's it goes back and forth because we I want to call it a nation because it's so big but it really isn't inaugurated into a nation until it gets to Mount Sinai where it's given all the rules with God this is how you will interact with me as my people but for for benefit's sake I'm going to call them a a, A uh, a nation now. They're on their way to Mount Sinai to go understand and be inaugurated and understand how they're to relate to their God, and then they're going to go on to the promised land. So what we have here is in Exodus 4.22, God refers to this nation as his son, as his firstborn son. A whole nation referred to as a son. We have a starting over again, this nation has that scene of oppression behind them by way of the Exodus. They are on a a journey to get to this garden-like setting called the Promised Land. In the garden, we have Adam uh, placed inside the garden, and this was the, the beginning of a wonderful relationship with God. We have this nation, which is referred to as his firstborn son, now marching on their way to, to the promised land so they can have this relationship, this close relationship with God. But just like in the garden, Satan enters in. Satan wants no part of these people making it to the garden. Now you have God sending, st- standing up his kingdom with borders in a place that is not supposed to, it's supposed to be holy, not supposed to have sin in it. And these people are somehow going to bless all the nations. Satan doesn't want any part of that. That's the rebooting of the garden setting again. God and man, mankind working together. And when I say working together, they're doing what they're called to do from the beginning. God has called mankind to rule and reign, and he's going to expand the kingdom is the picture so we have this understanding of a of a re, reboot, but we also have an understanding of an entrance of Satan again. And that's where we introduce Amalek, a king who represents not just his people, but someone far greater, Satan. So we understand that Amalek it represents all future post-deliverance, because they were delivered out of Egypt, serpent representatives who will attempt to destroy God's people. You know, when, when Gerald was reading that passage today, you may have come to the end of it and thought, man, was God a little bit harsh? I mean, he says, look, I'm blotting out this guy's name, Amalek, from forever. He will be forgotten and from generation to generation, he'll, he'll not be known. It, it, they're just a, a people that, I, there will be a war from generation to re- generation, and yet, he says, these people will be forgotten. They will be blotted out, the history of them, or at least the significance of them. Man, isn't that kind of brutal? When you understand how the ancient Near East works, this is a new start. That means this Amalek, is the representative of all who will come against his people as the enemy. He represents a larger uh, scenario, a larger person. He represents Satan. Thus, we'll see how this story unfolds and, and plays its part in that sense. But there's also an introduction, not just of Satan's new little puppet, his leader that will do his bidding and will do his, his, his best to destroy the people of God. But you, did you notice how abruptly, all of a sudden, it's almost like it's assumed? Joshua is, is spoken of. There's no backstory on Joshua. He just shows up. What do we see going on here? We see just as the, the serpent has a leader, God introduces into his narrative, hello, this is my leader. This is Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, or for our purposes today, Yahweh is deliverance. I mentioned to you before, those two words are not exactly synonyms. There is overlap into both words and understanding, but for today's purposes, we're going to understand Joshua's name as Yahweh is deliverance. In other words, Joshua is going to be used as God's agent of deliverance from who? From Amalek and his people, from the evil one. So, in that sense, Joshua is a foreshadowing of Jesus. In the, if you were to pronounce Jesus, or excuse me, uh, if you were to pronounce Joshua's name in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. If you were to pronounce Jesus' name in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. In fact, in, when you see Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ, it's Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. What is happening here is this is the physical foreshadowing, Joshua playing the role of defeating the evil one, satan and his minions, those people that that amalek has authority over. And we know that the Old Testament, working with our hermeneutic, which is an interpretive tool, working with our interpretive tool, the Old Testament sh- shows in physical form what is going to happen in the New Testament oftentimes in spiritual form. So when Jesus arrives on scene, we see Jesus the Messiah the anointed one, he is the one that will ultimately defeat Satan. He fulfills Genesis 3.15. He crushes the skull of the seed of the serpent. Satan himself is, the, is in view here. That is what is happening when Jesus gets here. Right now we see Joshua just defeating Amalek. The one who represents Satan but Jesus actually will defeat Satan so we continue on now with that background now we can look at this and understand more of what what Amalek Amalek represents so in verse 9 so Moses said to Joshua choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand remember for banner oftentimes referred to as a standard. You've heard in military terms. In fact, if you, go to, if you buy a flag from the store, it, the flagpole is oftentimes referred to as the standard, and the banner or the flag attaches to the standard. Or the, and sometimes in the ancient Near East, it was referred to as a signal pole. It gets raised, and it signals to everyone, this is your rally point. So we have Moses says, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God. Remember the staff represents God's presence, God's power, and God's authority. Presence, power, and authority. So in verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, Aaron who's Moses' brother, and Hur, her we don't know exactly who he is. Hur is spoken of in first chronicles 2 18 and 20 as caleb's son that could be him but interesting in jewish tradition her is either moses's sister's marian husband or he is the uh the offspring of Miriam. we don't know i mean do you go with tradition do you go with scripture is this something where scripture is just silent this is a different her it's not he's not identified later on we don't know well, we just know that somebody named Her goes with them, and he has a role to, to fulfill. And he went up to the top of, of the hill. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Jesus prevailed. It's neat in the, in the Hebrew. It actually says, woodenly, it's to be superior. It's a state of being. We use the word prevail because we understand it. But I think it's helpful to understand who is superior. There's a battle over who is superior. Think about the battle with the going on with the Satan will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman according to Genesis 3.15 but the seed of the woman will excuse me, I said that yes, yes, I said that correctly. But the, the, the crushing happens by the, by Jesus, the seed of the woman upon uh, the, the, the skull, if you will, of Uh, uh, Satan himself. So we see this battle going back and forth. So we see uh, Israel was superior, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed, or was superior. So we see in the application this. What do we take away from this at the very surface, very face value, if you will, but very valuable for us? These are principles that we're supposed to take away. We do not win the spiritual battle against the evil forces on our own. We don't What's going on with with uh, um, Moses raising the staff is he's demonstrating that Yahweh is present, Yahweh is powerful, and Yahweh has the authority to do that, which he can do, which is defeat. So we see here the staff represents God's involvement. In fact, really, what's mostly in focus here is what's happening on the hill, not the battlefield. You can see the emphasis is on what God is doing. Secondly, we know that Yahweh is the only one who is superior to the evil forces. We don't need to fear Satan because greater is is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know that he in in us is the Holy Spirit. But we do need to recognize that on our own, trying to take on Satan on our own, in our own flesh... He's, a heaven, he's from the heavenly host. He's a spiritual being. He outclasses us, outpowers us in every category of capability as far as it goes, as it relates to a one-on-one battle. We don't want to take him lightly. We want to make sure we go into battle engaged with the power of God, and we'll see that in a little bit. Thirdly, God's presence, power, and authority must be raised above all. We must not rely on our own. Listen to this. Jesus himself reinforced that spiritual battles are a daily struggle. I hope your mind is racing. Nick, you're talking about Jesus, so that must be the New Testament. Jesus himself reinforces that spiritual battles are a daily struggle. Nick, where are you quoting from? And something that we must pray for God to do on our behalf. This actually happens when the disciples say, teach us how to pray. And he teaches them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. I don't know how well or what you grasp in this portion of the Lord's uh, Prayer, but my hope is that you take away and forevermore when you recite, whether it's reciting in here, when we as a people recite it, or you recite it on your own, the Lord's Prayer, you have a better understanding of what this means. When Jesus tells his people at the very end, my disciples, you want to know How to pray? Well, here's the last thing you got to make sure you pray for. Remember, it's a daily prayer. Give us daily our our, our food, our sustenance, as well as it's talking about our our grace we need to survive. So it's a daily context that this prayer is talked about in. Listen to this. And lead us not into temptation. Oh, wait a second. Jesus cannot tempt us. He does not tempt us. He tests us. So this can't be talking about Jesus. It sounds like it. And lead us not into temptation. Let me read the end of this. But deliver us from the evil one. Oh, oh, wait a second. We got more context. That's a whole sentence. We can't just guess on the first part of this and say, oh, that's Jesus Lead can lead us into temptation. We have to see, oh, the back end of that says that is identifying who is the one who leads us into who is the one that tempts us. Excuse me. So it says this. It would be interpreted this way. And lead us not into temptation would be interpreted, do not allow us to be tempted by the evil one beyond our capacity to thwart him. Don't let us be tempted to that degree that he can overcome us. And it continues on, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, Jesus is reflecting back on this principle that we are learning today in this passage. Deliverance isn't, Lord, don't put me in any place where there's temptation. It's not the, that's not deliverance. We know that God says it all over the place. You've got to go through the storm as a Christian. Everyone else is trying to go around the storm in today's economy. I don't want it to be any part of the, of the storm. And Jesus says, no, no, no. These storms are are such that as you go through them with my power, you come out transformed. You come out with somebody that could only rely on me because these storms will beat you down unless you turn to me. These temptations will beat you down and will beat you unless you turn to me. You cannot overcome them without me. So, lead us not into temptation. In other words, do not allow us to be tempted by the evil one beyond our capacity to thwart him. How is that? But deliver us from the evil one. In other words, war on our behalf with the evil one as we battle. As we go through the storm, war on our behalf. I'm doing the warring, and yet he's doing the more important warring. He's doing the the warring that makes the difference, that defeats the temptation, that defeats the enemy, that defeats the physical enemy, Amalek, who points to the spiritual reality. Amalek is trying to destroy the people of God. Sin wants to destroy the people of God. We need to rely on God. Listen to this also in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. This is Paul talking to the, the, the Corinthians at the church at Corinth. That says this. For, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. Did you notice he says we are not waging war? In other words, yes, we're in the war, but we're not waging it by way of our own abilities, the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. And this is, for me, I'm a kind of a a war geek. I like to understand war. It fascinates me the... The evilness of men. I don't know why that fascinates me. I took abnormal psychology in college. I think that was kind of a normal bent. I wanted to understand why do men do what they do? I think God used some of that to drive me to become a Christian. I'll say it more biblically correct. God used that to start my heart thinking, if men are so disgustingly evil, how do we ever get reconciled back to a pure and holy God? And then God changed my heart and let me understand those truths. Let's continue on. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Sometimes the war isn't raging out there. The war is raging in here, and the war is raging in here. It's a war initiated by Satan. He wants you to think the wrong things, feel the wrong things, believe the wrong things, hold on to the wrong things, desire the wrong things. And we need a God who can do the transforming work that we no longer desire them. He uses the truth against the, the ways of darkness that bend and pervert and deceive the truth and he uses the, the power of the, of the Lord's conviction by the person of the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts, I am wrong. I'm a sinner. I need God's work in me to change me, to change, me, to change my thinking, to change how I, I, I manifest my heart. Therefore, I need God to change, continue to change my heart. Well, let's take a look at this. Now we, we look and study more closely. What's going on with her and Aaron? And it comes under the understanding that bullet point number two, others may need to aid the weary in exalting Yahweh. The Exodus 17, 12 through 13. But Moses' hands grew weary. The, uh, the wooden understanding of that grew weary. It's actually the words became heavy. It's a state of heaviness. I want you to think about something. In, in the U.S. military, they do this as a form of discipline. You've, you've actually probably seen it in some of the shows. Where they are forced to raise their rifle above their heads do you know why they that is so difficult because the anatomy of a human being that is extremely difficult to leave your arms raised above your head and so there will be a breaking down and a breaking down well this is this is the case it is not a case where moses is this weary old man at 80 some years of age no, the Bible tells us that Moses actually had the, the strength of, 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 that he did in his days of youth. He's an old 80 years man that's carrying around the strength of a what you, whatever you figure, 30, is was that your prime, 35, whatever your prime was. Maybe it was 18, I don't know. Uh, whatever it was, that's, this is the strength of Moses. So it's not like he's weary. We want to understand this a, a little bit better as we continue on. But Moses' hands grew weary as any one of us as all of our hands would grow weary in his position. So they took a stone, this is Aaron and Hur, and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held his hands, one on one side and one on the other, on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua over, overwhelmed. This is a fascinating Hebrew word. Yes, you could understand it as overwhelmed. There's more to it. In Deuteronomy 25.18, Moses tells us in the second giving, dudo is, is, is second in, in Greek. Deuteronomy is a Greek word for the book. Uh, it's the second giving of the law, the re-giving of the law, you might say. Moses tells us more about this battle. Moses tells us, and remember what, what Amalek did, how he attacked basically the, what he calls those who were lagging behind. When you're moving as a huge mass of a million people through the desert, who's going to lag behind? As I grew older, I know it's the aged, it's the elderly, it's the weaker ones, the young, probably the mothers trying to care for their young ones that are growing weak. So you have that picture as, as well as the lame, those that are injured in some way and are lame. This filthy version of Satan has the courage or the cowardice to, to attack those people. This is so Satan. He blindsides in the, in the garden by way of deception and tricks Eve, who, who in fact uh, is able to bring Adam into it. But Adam's ultimately the one held responsible. And now we see this blindsiding again. He doesn't, they're on their way. The front, the head is going to know only that's what's up in front of them. They don't know right away that the back of this group is being picked off by these cowardice, this, this filthy minded, no, no honor in him, representative of Satan. So the word here, has an idea here. It's not that Joshua overwhelmed. It's really cool. Joshua made weak. He who attacked the weak. The word means made weak. Joshua made Amalek weak. The punishment for Amalek was you want to take off the weak? You will be made weak. And what does he do? He, he, uh, Joshua prevails by the edge of the sword and starts to, to decimate. He doesn't completely get rid of, but he destroys them where they are no longer powerful enough to take on God's people. It's a neat picture of what our God does. Our God does not play with Satan and his minions. Our God makes weak. There is a day coming where Satan will be bound forever. Now our God is warring against him. And making him weak. He is restrained. He is on a tight leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. So we see here the lowering of the hands brings about the lowering of the staff. This represents the lessening of Yahweh's divine power or his influence. When the staff comes down, interesting enough, I want to share this. I always thought that it was like the rifle scenario I gave you that Moses was holding a staff like this. In the Hebrew, it, it says Moses holds the staff in a singular, in a hand. And then it says he holds it in the other hand. And you've got two on each side, one on each side, excuse me. You've got her and Aaron. The idea is he's holding the staff high. Some, some theologians have thought, well, maybe he's praying, because it says that when we pray uh, in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East, you would, you would stand like this and you would hold out both your hands. He's not holding out both his hands. He's holding up one hand that represents the power, presence, and the authority of God. And when he tires, one helps him out, and then ultimately he tires to the degree that he shifts it and he puts it in the other hand, and the other man holds it and holds it and holds it, and then he shifts it over. There's the picture. It's not a picture of, it's not an outward picture of prayer. It's an outward picture of God's presence, power, and authority. We need to remember that. But yet there's, in our hermeneutic, we just saw that Jesus referenced back to this. And Jesus said, you want to know how to pray? You pray like this. You pray for deliverance. You pray for God to do the warfare that only God can do. So there, when we, it is both. It's not just prayer. It's remembering in the midst of the fight, God's presence, power, and authority, as well as calling out to God and saying, use your presence, power, and authority to overcome, to make weak this adversary that I cannot do, take on on my own ability, my own strength. Paul realizes this. Paul says this as it relates to people coming alongside other people to exalt God himself. He says this. The, the context of this is out of Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, most of us will remember, is putting on the whole armor of God. He goes through all the different articles as if he's looking at or pondering what a Roman soldier wears. And he's bringing understanding to each body part, as it, or excuse me, each piece of equipment of the armor. And, and bringing it into alignment with, hey, this is what it looks like for the gospel, to bring on the gospel aspect of it. When he gets done with it, now the, the Christian is completely armored. They've got their using a police uh, idea on they've got their, their their body armor on they've got their uniform on they've got their protection it wouldn't be a sidearm it would be this, this the, uh, the sword of truth is the offensive weapon that we are uh, armored make up our armor Paul says this once you all set up with the, the armor of God, Pray, and this is uh, Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the spirit. In other words, allowing the spirit to lead and guide your prayer. Resting on the power of the spirit. Resting on the person, the authority, the presence. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. And this is the key. Making supplication for all the saints. Are you not being overwhelmed in a spiritual battle? Well, brother and sister... As part of the church, you have the duty, I have the duty, we have the privilege to go to the throne room of grace and petition our God to help those in our body of Christ that we know are being overwhelmed. Whether it's overwhelmed by, by sin manifesting in themselves in their life, or they're attacked by the world, and then you realize that, oh, this is greater than the, just the, uh, the usual goings on of the world. This is an attack from Satan. We, the people of God, are are called to pray for them, that God would deliver them or war on their behalf. Deliver them means war on their behalf. Let's finish with this. Third point, Yahweh is our rally point, our banner. I want you to see those as synonymous or synonyms. Rally point and banner have the same understanding. And so Yahweh is our rally point or banner for deliverance. Exodus 17, 14 to 16. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Why? Because Joshua is going to, want to be the agent that's going to defeat all the enemies in the, in the, in the uh, promised land when they, when they arrive there. Don't forget this, Joshua. Not only are you named Yahweh is deliverance, you have gotta, you've got to know this truth that I will utterly blot out. The, the Hebrew there is macha macha, which is, remember when two, two verbs are right next to each other, it means something of significance. And I think the, the translators do an excellent job of saying utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In other words... The glorious deeds of what God has done by bringing about deliverance from Amalek, deliverance from Satan, deliverance from the forces of evil will be remembered for all time. They'll be written in a book of memorial. But as for the significance of Satan and Amalek and their deeds and trying to grab the glory of God, insignificant. It's like they won't even be remembered. They have no significance. They are blotted out. That's the difference between what God does in his glory and what Satan tries to do in grabbing God's glory. Continues on. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh is my banner. In other words, my, my signal pole, my standard pole, my rally point, saying, and this, you'll, if you have the ESV, which most of you do, because that's what we, we preach out of, notice in your Bible it says this, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. And then it ends with, Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, I hope that confuses you because I went and got to that and said, that makes no sense. How did I write that with that? What, what does that mean? I hand upon the throne of, of, of Yahweh. Well, when you go in and you look at the, the Hebrew, you see there's some translation choices they made. First, they dropped off the word that stands for because. So because is an important word. Because a hand was, now you have a choice, a translation choice. Either you say upon or you say against. And I believe the word should be correctly translated against. So listen to it this way. Because a hand was against the throne of Yah. It doesn't. It's actually the, the shortened version of Yahweh. In other words, because of what Amalek did, In bringing his hand, his might against the throne of God, because of that, because he is the representative of Satan trying to bring his authority, his weight, his military might against God's throne, this is the reason. Yahweh will war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, the Amalekites in David's day were finally eradicated but not the representative that they they represent. That would be Satan himself. Satan has his head crushed on a particular hill that Christ Jesus was placed on a wooden pole, raised up, on Calvary, this hill called Calvary, which is on Mount Zion, so you have a double raising up of our Savior, of our Deliverer. He is raised up, and as we look upon him and recognize that he is our banner, he is our rallying point, he is the one we go to and we look at and we say, you are the one who has delivered us who has warred on our behalf and defeated Satan, who we could never defeat. And you are also our Savior, who has made it possible for us to be reconciled back to God. If you trust in that truth, if you repent of your sin and trust in the person and the work of Jesus, not just as our Savior saving us from sin, but also as our Deliverer delivering us from the evil one, The very first understanding of the gospel was Genesis 3.15 and he talks about deliverance and then later we start to understand what that deliverance looks like as well as salvation. We can't forget that he also delivered us from the evil one. When he comes back to rule and reign, he comes back to judge and separate Satan out forever. Satan will be removed from our presence. If you are under the oppression of spiritual darkness. You have that sin you cannot whip. You cannot beat. You have that person that, for whatever reason, the target is on your back. Why me? Why do I get all this hate from you? Whether it's outside or inside, you can know that Jesus Christ is our banner. He is our rally point. He has done the crushing. One day he will do the separating out. He will war on your and my behalf. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You're an amazing God. You're a God who progressively reveals your truth, and we stand in awe of it. Really, the the New Testament is the the story retold with more information. And that's truly what Christ has done in this, in giving us the Lord's prayer. He looks back. We're reminded of this. It's amazing. You are a God where the Everything is being used to bring about your plan of salvation. We don't need to to question. We don't need to be fearful in the war. We need to do our part and to call upon God to do the part that only he can do. And we thank you that we have a God that cares about us. We have a God that is our protector. We have a God that has prevailed against and will keep our faith forever and ever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.